All right, yeah. So I had the chance to interview uh, Christopher Lawson. Um, I was doing it from a library and there's some connectivity issues. So my video kept cut, cutting out and freezing and stuff. But it looks like in the most part, it caught a majority of the things that he was saying. There were some connectivity issues on my end. I'm going to go ahead and still post uh, the video because it seems for the most part usable. Um, just want you guys to be aware of that. Today for the, the podcast, I'm going to be interviewing uh, Christopher Lawson. Um, and he's done a book on reconstructing Jesus. Um, and so uh, I was curious if you'd be willing to give kind of a synopsis of your background, your studies into uh, what got you interested in the historical Jesus and the connection with the Dead Sea Scrolls and things like that. What, like, what's your background? Um, what kind of brought you to this topic? Okay, well, the Dead Sea Scrolls had just basically been discovered when I was about five years old, so they're not, they're not, uh, they were of interest to me as soon as I became a teenager. I was a very pious teenager. I was raised in the most Jewish of all Christian groups, the Seventh-day Adventists. Okay. The Seventh-day Adventists keep a Seventh-day Sabbath from Friday sunset to Saturday sunset, eat a kosher diet, and uh, they have a strange theology that uh, says that future events are going to mimic sanctuary patterns of events in the ancient sanctuary so they taught us all about the ancient jewish sanctuary services and things like that so we learned a lot of jewish stuff uh and of course you're very impacted by having the seventh day sabbath uh that's way different from everybody else in every other social group all of a sudden you're not at the saturday baseball games and things like that so it really does change your perspective i was a very devout believer i uh became a minister uh, i think we had a technical issue uh we cut out for about 30 seconds there uh could you go okay. back uh to uh you were talking about the seventh day adventist and yes i was i was raised a seventh day adventist i became a seventh day adventist minister and uh i wasn't satisfied to just get uh, a bachelor of divinity and a master of divinity i wanted to really study the stuff in depth so i went and got a bachelor of arts with a major in theology and that takes about three times the credit hours if you look at the university transcripts as it takes to get a bachelor of divinity and a master's of divinity together about almost three times the credit hours just to get the bachelor of arts the major in theology and a minor in biblical languages and textual criticism so uh that that's uh the most relevant studies i i went on to graduate school where i went on to work on my master of arts in uh in teaching in elementary education and the master of science in in psychology uh, these are at andrews university graduate school which is a seventh Adventist graduate school i ended up becoming a principal of the niagara falls seventh Adventist elementary school and then i left the seventh Adventist church as i educated myself uh past my parochial beliefs and uh became more wide open and my interest in the dead sea scrolls never abated so i continued to study the dead sea scrolls for decades thereafter so i've had four decades of study of the dead sea scrolls since my 22 years of professional training that's a good amount of time 
for anything really. Um, okay. Um, so yeah, let's start, I guess let's get into some of the topics today. Um, kind of set up, I guess, uh, your studies and your research. Yes. Uh, what do you make of the Hasmonean revolt and its impact on the Zealots, the Zachari, uh, Jewish separatists, and the cultural underpinnings that laid the foundation for the Essene community at Qumran? Um, how did the Hellenization of the Sadducean temple priesthood play into the birth of the community and, and uh, I guess, the, the background of the, the Qumran community? That is a brilliant opening question. <laughs> the, uh, the really is uh, the Maccabean revolt was the essence of what was represented in virtually all the Jewish revolts uh, a nationalistic fervor yeah. uh, separatistic fervor uh, and xenophobia the, uh, there is when you combine those you basically have a description of the Dead Sea Scroll community. They were they were the heirs to the Maccabean revolt, in but they were a generation later. Actually, the Dead Sea Scrolls combine a lot of history because there's uh, a Genitza in K4, and that meant scrolls going back to the earlier inhabitants of Qumran, the Essenes, are preserved there. So you have Essene writings. Plus, you have the fourth sect. Now, I like to label them Nazarene. I, I know that uh, that will need ex explanation concerning how you like to associate uh, the Nazarene with uh, a different group because the Nazarene name, due to its association with the New Testament Jesus, uh -huh. gave itself links to other groups which were not the original group called Nazarene. In Jesus' right. time. Right. So, uh, yeah. Go ahead. so the short answer is the Maccabean revolt lay the foundation for Jewish separatism and, and sectarian uh, uh, participation in political revolution. Uh, so and, and it was the, the and the motive for the motives for the participation are the same. Purity motives, righteousness motives, love of Torah. And the uh, and the, their sense of being offended, uh, people don't understand. New Testament Christians, when they read their Bibles, don't understand that the Roman presence in Judea was an offense to conservative Jews. Yeah, and that uh, when when you look at the technical rules in Torah, uh, and such as no graven images, then. You look at the Romans and they're carrying their standards and they have graven images on them. They have coins with graven images on them. They have uh, slogans and abbreviations ascribing divinity to the emperor. Uh, the, these things are being carried into the Holy Land, which is supposed to be kept pure. And these people are so firm that they're willing to shed their blood to stop this transgression of a foreigner invading their holy space and offending God. And that's the way they viewed it, that the Romans were sinners offending God. And so they were labeled sons of darkness by this group. The, uh, they were also labeled as the Katim, although the Katim linguistically uh, could be 
recognize the people from any of the islands, in, including Cyprus, they specifically used it for the Romans because it was used in the book of Daniel as the last kingdom to be destroyed before the Messiah came. So they're saying, these are the guys, this is the last kingdom, we're identifying them, these are the guys, next stop Messiah. Mm -hmm. the, uh, and the, that's where they differ from the Maccabean group. They're messianic. Mm -hmm. So, and, and this is where they transition towards the Christians, which the very concept Christ, the word Christos, anointed one in Greek, is the equivalent of Mashiach in Hebrew for anointed. So yeah. Messianic and Christ are the same thing. This is for the viewers, Christian viewers who don't read. Anyway, so they're the heirs to this. Now, sectarian names transitioned, and a lot of sectarian names carried over from the roots of the, the group that they had diverged off from. And so there can be confusion, especially when third parties are trying to sort them all out. So, for example, Paul was said to be the leader of the Nazarenes. Yeah. When he was not. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he was. Paul was the leader of the Christians, the first called Christians at Antioch, which is one of Paul's groups. Mm -hmm. So Paul's the leader of that group. Not the Nazarenes, but the, it's the same group that are meeting because I, I contend that the original group, Jesus, the Nazarene, mm -hmm. is the original Nazarene. And we now have to pause for a moment and say, how do we do our history? To How do we know we know what we think we know? Mm -hmm. The uh, and, and I suggest we need to prioritize our sources. So if we're going to ask ourselves about Jesus and the sects in the time of Jesus, the, Jew, the different Jewish sects, then we have to say, as, since we're talking about a Messianic Jew in Judea in the first century, then if we can get a source closer to Judea, then it's a more reliable source than the source from outside of Judea. Yeah. If we can get a source closer to the first century than a later source, then it's more more reliable than the later source to have one right from that time period. If we can get a source that is written in, in Jesus's own language rather than a, a source written in some other language, some translated version. Yeah. We're, yeah. we're probably closer to the original. Yeah. If we can get a source that is the same sect as Jesus or pro sect that sect of Jesus rather than opponent of the sect that wants to distort it we're more likely to get a real picture of what they taught okay. now if we can get a source that has not been edited over time has not been no one's had access to it that uh, that's better than a source that's been continually edited yeah oh yeah now, now, if we can get a source that was meant for sectarian eyes only and wasn't even intended for us to see, mm -hmm. then we can get the real inside information. Is this a fair appraisal of how to prioritize sources, that these are the things we should look for in our sources, and when we compare our sources, that these are the criteria by which we will judge them? Can we agree on that? 
the best yeah. sense? Yeah. Okay. Now, when I look at the Talmud, I say, hey, it's a Jewish source. Now, uh, we only have it in translation, sadly, but it's at least a Jewish source, so it's probably more reliable than the source outside of Judaism. When I look at the Nagamadi library, I say, okay, that's from an outs that's not in, from Judea either. Hmm. So that's outside, and it's in Coptic, so it's in another language. And the sect seems to be a divergent group that's come off from that sect, the Gnostics. Yeah. Yeah. So, and and uh, and they're later again, a different time period. The New Testament. Virtually no part of the New Testament was written in Judea. It's everywhere but Judea. Yeah. Isn't that weird? It's a thing Very about strange, Jesus, yeah. and not one book comes from Jesus' town, neighborhood. Yeah, not one of them is, not one text in the New Testament was written in Jesus' language, although some people argue that Matthew might have been written originally in that language. I suspect that Matthew just quoted sources that were originally in that language and that Matthew was not. I think Matthew was written in Greek originally and that he he quoted sources that were were originally in Hebrew mm. or Aramaic. Yeah. Anyways, so virtually the whole New Testament is written in Koine Greek uh, yeah. and, and portions of Paul and Attic Greek. Mm. Okay, so Again, not Hebrew or Aramaic, the, the home language of Jesus, and certainly not the same sect as Jesus. Yeah, so once we have uh, this understanding, we then say, is there any source closer to the time of Jesus from his neighborhood, in his language, from his sect, that's messianic as well? That's another plus. And the answer is, yes, there is. It's called the Dead Sea Scrolls. And Dead Sea Scrolls are Messianic. They are Jewish. They are Jesus' sect. They are first century. These are the ones that are relevant to us. The commentaries on the Old Testament text, the Peshrim are first century. Uh, Damascus document, first century. The, these, these are relevant texts for us. The, uh, one Quixotio, first century. Uh, that's a hymn, uh, hymn scroll from Cave One. These are very important schools for our understanding of Messianic Judaism. So mm. if we want to understand Messianic Judaism, then let's go to the prioritize the Dead Sea Scrolls. If the Dead Sea Scrolls say this is what they taught, then all other sources be damned that say anything different, that's what they taught. Mm. Because they're the source, it's their writings. And it's the writings we weren't even meant to see. It's meant for, they're writing this for themselves, for their own internal uh, group. So you can't, they're not trying to fool each other. This is what they really think. Mm -hmm. So when we find that they called themselves Shamrai Habri, keepers of the covenant, guardians of the covenant. And that the the equivalent to that is Nazarene Habri, Nazarene, the collective plural Nazarene. That's the source of the of the sectarian sectarian name Nazarene. We know it's a sectarian name. Even the New Testament admits it's a sectarian name. All right, mm, it says yeah. that in Acts twenty five, a sectarian name. 
Well, once we know it's a sectarian name, we know several important things. Number one, it predates Jesus because the various Judean sects predated before Jesus came on arrival. Mm. Okay, so it's not named after Jesus or what he did or where he came from. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah. Next thing, it's not named after any place at all. None of the sectarian names in Jesus's time were from places. Later on, after the war, there were there was there were Menemian sects named after various places on for some of them. But before the war, there were only four sects, according to Josephus. And that's another thing is we're talking prioritization of sources. The only source we have, Jewish source, that talks about Jewish sects that comes from the first century is Josephus. So we must highly value what Josephus has to say about these sects. But Josephus also tells us some information that's revealing about himself. Josephus was not a devout sectarian Jew. He likes to pretend he went through devoutedly and, and examined everything thoroughly. But when you read his account and you, you read it with a critical eye, you realize that Josephus was a spoiled Hellenistic Jew yeah. who hardly who, who grazed the surface and thought he delved in deeply mm -hmm. the uh and that's one of the things we can start with uh let's deal with the sex according to josephus and i'll i'll cite josephus now from the wars of the jews uh book seven and uh, you can look up the rest in my book Reconstructing Jesus, if you want uh, the specific details. All right. Okay. Actually, first of all, let's start with Life of Flavius Josephus and get his little bit of a detail. He says, when I was about 16 years old, I decided to get experience of the sects that existed among us. Let's just think about that thing first. He's saying that before he was 16, he had no experience of the sects that were among the Jews. He wanted to get some experience of those sects when he was 16. Mm -hmm. What type of Jew gets to the age of 16 without any experience of any sect of Judaism? A Hellenistic Jew, a Herodian, who's basically mm -hmm. a Roman in his lifestyle. That's the only kind of Jew that I can think of in the first century that wouldn't have had much experience with Judaism per se, but just he's a Jew in name because of his because of his bloodline. So are you saying that uh, he didn't have a bar mitzvah at the age of thirteen? Type? I'm saying I'm I'm saying that Josephus himself mm. is saying that he didn't have a deep experience in it. He, he went through the rudimentary customs, presumably that he needed for social custom, mm -hmm. and did that. But as far as being really experienced in it, in his own words, he was about 16 when he decided to get experience. Mm -hmm. That's his words. You make of it what you will. I, I'm just looking, I'm just providing the evidence in Josephus's words. Mm -hmm. And I'm just saying that we have no evidence from Josephus that he was any deeper than, than that so far. Now, he says, the sects, he says, these are three, as we have many times the first, that of the Pharisees, the, sec, uh, the second, the Sadducees, the third, the Essenes. 
Now, later on, he divides it into four sects, as we'll get into when I cite Josephus. But right here, he's deciding that there's three sects. And he said that he decided, I thought that in this way, I should choose the best if I carefully examine them all. Therefore, submitting myself in strict training and many uh, strenuous labors, I passed through the three groups, having considered the experiences thus gained to be insufficient for myself, and on learning of a certain man named Banus, who lived in the desert, who wore clothing supplied from the trees, took his food only that which grew by itself, and washed many times in cold water both day and night for purification, I became his devotee. Now, let's think about this Banus first of all. He sounds like an Essene who's been kicked out of the group because he's not in with the living communally with the rest of them, but he's under an oath to God that he must live upon only what grows wild because that was their way, as Josephus will later describe them. And so he's living out in the wilderness, surviving as an Essene, but as a lone Essene. And this is the Essene that Josephus is able to approach that isn't shunning him. Whereas most of the Essenes would have walked away from Josephus as being unclean because he'd just been with participating in whatever Roman things he was doing. Mm. You know, he might've just had a pork dinner, you know? So anyways, who knows whether Josephus uh, honored the uh, dietary code. I suspect he didn't because uh, he seems to be a mirror of Paul mm. in, in many ways. Uh, anyway, so he then, he says, when I had lived with him for three years and accomplished my purpose, I returned to the city. Then he says, being now 19 years old, I began to conduct myself according to the rules of the sect of the Pharisees. Now we have to think about what he just said. He began his deep study of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Essenes when he's about 16. We know that he said he took three years with Banus. That's his study of the Essenes. Mm. An outsider of the Essenes is as close as he could get. And he spent three years with him. Mm. Now, th from 16 and three years makes 19. There's only the time between about 16 and 16 that he had for his study with the Pharisees and the Sadducees then. That means he had very little time with the Pharisees or the Sadducees, and the only and the time he spent the most with was an outsider of the Essenes. That means he had really hardly any real inside information on any of them. He 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 wasn't a devout student for years and years like the average Jew would be, if, if as a participant in any given sect, whatever sect he was part of, he would be a million times more informed about that sect than Josephus ever would have been. Mm. Just average Jewish Jew guy. You know, Josephus was more Roman than Jew. And he betrays it in his writings. At one point, he says, their laws and their books, referring to the Jews, not, mm. not our laws, our books. If he was a Jew, he would have said our laws, yeah. our books. Yeah. So he, he's referring to Jews as them, the other so Josephus is a Jew who really became in mind and thought and in every way a Roman. And in fact, his, his experience at Jodhapada really betrays that. Mm. Josephus was a leader of uh, a, a captain in one of the zealot groups in uh, 
Galilee. And the Romans cornered them and got them got them stuck in a cave. And uh, it was about 30 of them or so were in the cave. Josephus told them that they needed to do the honorable thing and help each other to have a, a clean death and a, a ritual pure to, to meet their, their end in ritual purity. And uh, so they arranged to cut each other's throats and Josephus and one other guy became were the last holders of the blades. Then they turned themselves over to the Romans. Josephus then became a translator for the Romans and the tour guide and uh, were basically a spy for pointing out where all the other zealot hideouts were. He became a turncoat on his own people. So uh, I really do not understand how devout Jews don't have more contempt for Josephus. <laughs> the, uh, I really, I really don't. If I was a nationalistic Jew, I would, I would grimace every time I heard the name of Josephus. <laughs> the, uh, to tell you the truth, and he went out of his way to make the nationalist Jews look like brigands. Another term, by the way, that the New Testament used for those who were crucified beside Jesus. Now, the uh, Joseph. Josephus then went on to say that there was a fourth sect of the Jews. The fourth sect, he said, but of the fourth sect of Jewish philosophy, and this is from antiquities, Judah the Galilean was the author. These men agree in all other things with Pharisaic notions, but they have inviolable attachment to liberty and say that God is to be their only ruler and they do not value dying any kind of death and he goes on to talk about their their uh, propensity to take martyrdom with great nobility and take it in stride yeah elsewhere he goes on to say in a different place that the fourth sect was very much like the Essenes and everything in terms of their uh, all their rules in terms of communal living etc uh, etc et so that's not a far stretch. The Pharisees, the the yeah. one um, divided into two groups. So I, I had some questions. You kind of talked about the community. Yeah. Um, before we really get into some details, I was curious about uh, painting a picture of what a day in the life of the Essenes at Qumran looked like. Uh, could you explain some of the elements of ritual purity, mikvah, the communal meals? Uh, and do you see echoes of the stories about uh, John the Baptist of purity and the use of mikvah? Um, I really like, just give me a good characterization of like the life of an Essene or the, the community of Qumran. Okay, that, that, that's a big ask. Uh, had, your video looks like you're frozen there. I don't know if it that's... It does, yeah. Anyway, uh, the Qumran group kept all things in common. There were three years of initiation required to get into the group. The uh, you after three years you were admitted to the communal meal. Uh, before that, you were still an outsider. From that, the your even even your wealth that you'd given to the community would be given back to you. If you uh, exited early, they didn't want your unclean money and wealth. They were that purity conscious. The uh, 
you had to listen carefully. You, you rose at sunrise, just before sunrise. You uh, then began your prayers. Uh, you would you would face the east, and uh, and and do your prayers, uh, seeking a, a, as if the rising sun was the uh, uh, coming glory of the messianic age, and uh, that you were praying for it to come as soon as possible. And that's often mistaken as if they were trying to pray for the sun to rise. No, they were basically praying for this coming age, which they symbolized by this glorious sun's glory in the morning. They, they uh, held their meals in common. Uh, your garments, were, you, you got them from the community and you, uh, wore, you wore them until they got worn out. Uh, you uh, had to be very attentive. You uh, kept your the hand that you did your personal duties with inside your robe, your your white linen robe at all times. The uh, you did not spit to the uh, right. Uh, when you had a little shovel for doing your bodily duties where you would go beyond the required limit away from the camp to uh, dig a little hole in the ground to relieve yourself and cover it with the dirt that you dug out. Uh, you did not do that on the Sabbath. Uh, so you made sure that you didn't eat too heavily before the Sabbath so you wouldn't have too much strain and making sure uh, that you Waited, but then you can imagine that you were part of the uh, sectarian lineup heading out <laughs> after the sunset <laughs> every every Sabbath evening when the sun finally set. <laughs> that would have been kind of a funny thing to see. Uh, the you made sure that you're uh, kept ritually pure by constant bathing uh, in a mikvah. Uh, the mikvah had to contain at least 10% rainwater from the Holy Land. Uh, the, the Jordan River was considered Holy Land rainwater. Uh, so uh, that's a similarity to John the Baptist and the, the, the uh, idea of uh, ritual purification and preparation for the coming of the Messiah. That sounds John the Baptist. Uh, being in the location of the Jordan River uh, where it meets the Dead Sea, it matches the Essene community. The location matches uh, the the rivalry between John the Baptist and his uh, offense against Herod, his preaching against Herod and his opposition to Herod matches the Essenes as well. Uh, how do I know the Essenes are anti-Herod? Because they had a rule that the king had to be pure-blooded on both sides, had to be pure-blood Jew by his father and his mother. And that's anti-Herod because Herod was half Idumean and uh, half uh, Benjaminite. Uh, then they, they had rules that you, uh, when you got married, you stayed married forever. Uh, it's till death do you part. Uh, so no divorces. Uh, they had rules that you never marry your cousin. And uh, Herod married his cousin, got a divorce, and married another cousin. So 
this nothing could be more anti-Herodian than these rules. Mm-hmm. So, so we know they were anti-Herod. The uh, the idea the king had to be pure blood Jew on both sides was natural for the sectarians because the sectarians themselves, according to Josephus, the Essenes were Jews by birth. Quote from Josephus, and the the fourth philosophy was the same as them in all these respects, said Josephus. They, uh, so I suggest that it is this fourth philosophy uh, of uh, due to the Galilean that repre- is represented by the Dead Sea Scrolls. There, the uh, anti-Roman nature of the scrolls is very clear. Uh, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you fine. Your audio cut out for a minute there. Um, I think I okay. have like the library here might have like a bad connection. Um, do you want to restart or what do you want to do? Um, let's just uh, go back a little bit on what you were saying. Um, okay. Uh, that the Dead Sea School community is anti Herod. Uh, because it had rules against uh, marrying a cousin, rules against divorce, and rules that the king had to be pure-blood Jewish on both sides. The uh, Herod was not uh, pure-blood Jewish on both sides. He was half Idumean and half uh, Benjaminite. Uh, he married his own cousin. He got divorced and married another cousin. So he broke all those rules. Uh, the Jewish sect- sectarians of the fourth philosophy just like the sect group that they broke off from, the Essene group, they were Jews by birth. Uh, these were nationalist Jews. They were they were planning a war against Rome. And uh, their uh, war school uh, is a, an actual military manual. Now, that's according uh, to great scholars who, who, who looked at it. Uh, Egal Yadin, who was uh, uh, not only an archaeologist, a Hebrew scholar, and uh, he was also a Mossad general. So he's just just the person to look at something that might be a military manual. And he said it was a perfect match, counterbalancing to uh, first century Roman military manuals. And uh, Andre Dupont Summer concurred, had the same opinion on that. So the uh, these Dead Sea School community people, they were planning a war with Rome. And in fact, they started the war with Rome. The uh, lower priesthood was being trained at Qumran. And uh, they were the ones who gave the signal to the revolt uh, when they stopped sacrifices on behalf of the emperor. So they, the Jews started the war with Rome. Rome didn't start the war with the Jews. And the Jews started it according to their own timing. Now, the Dead Sea Scrolls have a very clear uh, general schedule about them. When you read them, they all seem to be part of a commentary on the same time plan. And they talk about two time periods, a 20-year period and a 40-year period in the scrolls repeatedly. They say that it was a 20-year period uh, between the time period when they were wandering like uh, blind men, groping for the way, and then God sent them a teacher of righteousness to show them the way. 
Are you still with me? Yeah, I am. I just oh. figured I'd turn off my video so it's not jam up the, the internet. Okay, no problem. So they they promise. Let's see if we can show you the exact quote. Anyways, I, I paraphrased it pretty well. But they were like blind men, like men who groping seek their way for 20 years and God considered their works for they had sought him with a perfect heart and he raised up for them a teacher of righteousness to lead them in the way of his heart and to make known to the last generations what he would do to the last generation, the congregation of, of traitors. That's in the Damascus document. They have, this 20 year period, I suggest began when their original sectarian founder, Judah the Galilean, died. That would be 6 CE, uh, when you get crucified. 20 years later would be 26 CE, and that's an exact match to the alleged time that Jesus began his public ministry, according to the way most Christians understand the New Testament the time uh, frames. So it's an exact perfect match to the timing of Jesus. Now, this war with the Romans was supposed to come to a head 40 years after the death of this teacher, and that climax was in 70 CE. Now, if we read backwards from that by 40 years, then we end up, the, the teacher died in 30 CE. Again, a perfect match to the timing of the alleged time for the death of the New Testament Jesus. So it does seem like the historical Jesus uh, may have been the uh, unique teacher from this Dead Sea School group of sectarians. And can you still hear me, Jeremiah? Yeah, I'm here. Okay, just making sure the recording's going okay. The yeah. So here's a quote from this teacher of righteousness from the Dead Sea Scroll community. And I suggest if you listen to what he wrote for, about himself, that a psychologist would probably assess him as having what is called in psychology a Jesus complex. Now, you decide for yourself if you think this guy has some kind of messianic Jesus complex, okay? Whether he's Jesus or not, does he have that kind of complex? Does it sound like that kind of guy? Here it is, a quote. They said of the vision of knowledge, it is not certain, and of the path of your heart, it is not that. But you, O oh God, will answer them, judging them with your power according to their idols and their numerous sins, so that in their schemes are caught those who deviate from your covenant. At the judgment, you will annihilate all the men of deception. There will no longer exist seers of delusion, for they do not value me. Even though you exhibit your power in me and reveal yourself in me with your strength to enlighten them, you have not covered in disgrace the face of all those looking for me, those who unite together for your covenant. Those who walk on the path of your heart have listened to me. They have aligned themselves with you in the council of the holy ones. Through me, you have enlightened the face of the many. You have increased them, even making them uncountable. For you have shown me your wondrous mysteries. What is your reaction to that, Jeremiah? Does that sound messianic, a Jesus complex? Uh, is that a question for me? Yeah, um, it's a question for you. Does that sound like someone with a Jesus complex? 
it sounded like me, me, me. God has done this through me. I've done this and this. And everybody's looking for me. And everybody looking for me, they're doing really good. And uh, God showed me all the wondrous mysteries. And he's enlightened the face of the many. And he's made them into many. All because what he did through me. It's it's megalomania. And I mean, it, it definitely something sounds like a similar kind of mindset. Um, it does, you, doesn't um, it? Have you read uh, Hugh Sconfield's uh, The Passover Plot? Where... Yes, yes. I'll tell you where I uh, say that Hugh has gone uh, on a, a red herring path uh, for several reasons. First of all, he doesn't prioritize the sources the way I do and prioritize what the Dead Sea Scrolls say from the, that time period. He uses the imagery of the New Testament Jesus as his prior primary source of information and the new testament jesus one of the differences between the the teacher of righteousness messiah of the dead sea scroll community and new testament jesus one of the biggest differences is the differences in how long the time period was be to be before they resurrected the dead sea scroll community expected their teacher of righteousness to resurrect they believed in resurrection it's a match but they were jewish about it they were Jews, so they were reenacting the Exodus. It would be a 40-year wait, one generation. And that explains all this, why it'd be one generation till everything's wrapped up. That theme echoes in the New Testament, that one generation thing. And there's even hints of the historical Jesus saying that there are some, according to Mark, there's some standing here who will not taste death till all these things are fulfilled. That matches the as seen Jesus, the historical one, but it doesn't match the New Testament one. It makes him look like a false prophet. Yeah, they, they, the Dead Sea Scroll Messiah was to resurrect after a period of 40 years. The, the mythologized one was written about after the 40 years had already passed, and all the people who believed in that idea had been wiped out by the war, and all their leaders who taught it were also wiped out. So they're all gone now, and the Pauline version, the, the, the original group called the liar, the deceiver, it sounds like Paul is described in the Habakkuk pressure, and Robert Eisenman makes a great case for that in his uh, book, James the Just and the Habakkuk pressure, published by Brill over 30 years ago. That's a, a word for word, a line by line review of the Habakkuk pressure and all the implications of each word in the Hebrew. And I don't think anybody's ever done a better job of reviewing it and explaining it than Eisman has done in that. I think that was Eisman in his prime at his peak. And uh, uh, Eisman is retired now. So he's not, he's no longer at his peak. And some people who have uh, uh, felt that Eisman his work was weak to have looked at him as a senior rather than his work as a, as a, a vigorous scholar. And uh, in his vigorous prime, Eisenman's work is unrefuted and brilliant and uh, extremely complex. And most scholars I found have only a cursory knowledge or awareness of Eisenman's depth because Eisenman is so hard to read. 
to read Iceman, you have to juggle a whole bunch of things the same way Iceman does. And I suggest that you can't read any faster than you read the end notes with it, which is how I read Iceman. I read them with the end notes all the way through. It takes me forever to get through it. But when I when I when I'm done reading him, yeah, I'll have his his I'll have an index in my book of all sorts of things and my books will be falling apart yeah and it will be done i don't know if you can see this but uh, yeah i was able to see it yeah you get to see that my iceman work is all compare this compare that compare page this you know and this theme again it's all the way through uh Oh my! I, I I have been trained in Hebrew, but it's not my mother tongue. Mm -hmm. So I read the scrolls regularly in English translation. But then, when there's specific things, I go for the scholarly depth of the original language when when needed for specific areas. And I rely a lot on Iceman. But as you can see, I put an index in my books. This is. DuPont Summers translations of the Dead Sea Scrolls, but it's the same thing. It's they're all you get the drift. My books yeah. are all. Uh, it, if I take a library book home, I have to tell them that I lost it and pay for it because I've destroyed it by writing notes all the way to them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anyways, uh, so don't loan me your books unless you want them all note. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyways, uh, some of the things about the Dead Sea Scroll community, just so to say how things that I say match the Jesus story. And after a certain point, it becomes too many things to be a mere coincidence. Now, we have to say which sect did Jesus belong to? Was he a Pharisee? No, he condemned the Pharisees. Even the New Testament said, portrays Jesus as condemning the Pharisees, although he wasn't really far from the Pharisees in its attitude. If we're reading Josephus write about Jew the Galilean and his sect in their ideas, of course, the Pharisees are misrepresented in the New Testament as well. Yeah. Uh, and not all Pharisees and not all Sadducees are created equal. Eisman has well pointed out that within each of these groups, there was a difference between the nationalist group and the Hellenistic groups. So uh, that made it. Are you still with me there, Jeremiah? Okay. Right. So the difference, the Pharisees that were cooperating with the Romans and the Sadducees who were cooperating with the Romans, the Dead Sea Scroll community had no time for them. They were called uh, seekers after smooth things. Uh, they were basically marked for death by the Dead Sea Scroll community. Dead Sea Scroll community did not want any uh, cooperation with the Romans in any way whatsoever. But here are some of the things about how they match uh, the Jesus set. They had a teacher of righteousness. They called him the son of God. They had a council of 12. They had an inner circle of three. They included women in their group. They were opposed by a wicked priest. They were led 
the group was led, uh, excuse me, this teacher led a group who expected a resurrection. By the way, expectation of resurrection also means not satisfying. So there, the, there are scholars such as uh, uh, Schiffman and then there's Norman Gold uh, who have suggested that there's a satisfying connection to the Dead Sea School community. I would suggest that the various halakhic rules, which would seem more palatable to the Sadducees that were included by the Dead Sea School community, were accommodations because these people were trying to get all Jews to reunite in the rebellion against Rome. They were planning a war against Rome where it was basically going to be all Jews of any stripe that are willing to be anti-Rome come and join us. The, uh, so they were they're trying to put an army together. They were recruiting. So. I think for for anyone who is a pure blood Jew, a uh, little sectarian variation, they could accommodate that, uh, but they wouldn't accommodate foreign accommodation. That that was taboo for them. Uh -huh. uh, they believed in angels again, not normal Sadducean idea. Sadducees didn't believe in angels. They had strict rules on marriage. They had a very distinctive phrase. If you go look at all the books of Judaism in throughout all of history and look for the, just the specific phrase, Ruach Hodesh, Holy Spirit. It's as rare as hen's teeth. The, uh, you get uh, the, the unarticulated Ruach Hodesh seems to be a distinctive phrase only, primarily used by the Dead Sea School community. Now, you, I'm not saying you can't find it elsewhere. Uh, I've had a number of my Jewish friends say they found at least a half a dozen examples of it elsewhere. But in the Dead Sea Scrolls, there are hundreds of examples of it. Hundreds. So this is a distinctive sectarian term, and it's new. It's not a term used even once in the entire Tanakh. So that's that's very, very distinctive. The very fact that they would have that and it just matches the Jesus sect. That, uh, that, along with all goods in common, Jesus said his disciples held all good things in common. That is also very distinctive. Inclusion of women also means it's not the Essenes. They had a sacred meal. Use of rank. Uh, the disciples are said to uh, be squabbling over their rank in the New Testament. Uh, calling themselves Nazarene, keepers of the covenant. Uh, let's get back to the term Nazarene. Uh, Nazarene, Nazarene is a collective plural. Uh, Nazor, to keep or to guard. So these were keepers or guardians of the covenant, Nazarene Hatora, but they were also followers of the branch. Now, the term the branch, the Hebrew word Netzer, was a technical term for the uh, heir to David's throne, the, the messianic heir was uh, known as the branch, the branch of David. Uh, so people who are followers of the branch, followers of the branch of David were Netzarim. So if you take the word Netzarim and the word Natsarim in Hebrew, it's spelled exactly the same. They didn't have vowel pointing back then. So you'd exa have exactly the same word. So Netzarim and Natsarim are the root for Nazarene. And it, it's a sectarian name with a meaning. Every sectarian name had a meaning. The, uh, the Pharisees named 
they were the separated ones from Perez to separate. So you get Pharisees from Perez. The Sadducees were the sons of Zadok, so Zadokim. They also consider themselves righteous ones, so Zadokim again. They are another way of spelling it, but sons of Zadok is Zadokim versus Zadokim. The, uh, anyways, uh, the Essenes were doers of the law. They're Asim uh, Hatora. The collective plural Asim would give you Essene. So all of these names came from the meaning that's a, uh, a descriptive of their sect. The, the Pharisees were not from Phariseeville. The Sadducees were not from Sadic City. The Essenes were not from the village of S. And the Nazarenes were not from Nazareth. Okay. None, none of these sectarian names match that. Some people also say that Nazarene came from the word Nazarite. Wrong. That's people reading in English only, making that connection. And it's a, it's just a surface uh, uh, coincidence. Uh, it's not the same root. The Z in Nazir, uh, of the, for Nazarite vow, is a Zion. The Z in Nazarene is a Zade. They're different root words in the original language. They're not from the, they're not from the same thing. And yet there are many Christian uh, writers who quote other Christian writers who didn't think that's true and just were make, making the connection in English only. And it's not a connection there. The, so the Nazarene sect, it's a sectarian name. That means it's got nothing to do with the Nazarite vowel. It's a different spelling than Nazarite. And it's got nothing to do with Nazareth because none of the sectarian names had anything to do with the place. And uh, so... Now, it eventually did become a connection to Nazareth, though, because Jesus the Nazarene became Jesus Christ, the Savior of the Pauline Christians. And the Pauline Christians called him the Nazarene. And so they were there in the first century and uh, second century, right? You did have uh, a Nazari and, uh, sect which was a Pauline Christian sect named after Jesus of Nazareth. And so their Nazarene sect was named after Nazareth <laughs> because they're named after Jesus of Nazareth. But that's part of the New Testament cover-up of the historical Jesus. Just like they changed the 40-year period, the, the expected Messianic wait was a 40-year period in Messianic Judaism. They changed it to a three-day wait. And that gets me back to Hugh Schoenfeld, by the way. Hugh Schoenfeld in the Passover plot assumes that Jesus could have faked his death and lived through it because it was only a three-day time period. Let's see him apply that to a 40-year period of being dead. <laughs> it doesn't work so easy. He fainted for 40 years. Uh, yeah, Hugh's, Hugh Schoenfeld's plot fails because it assumes the faulty history supplied by the fake New Testament story. The New, the New Testament story said it was a three-day wait for the resurrection, and it wasn't. It was a 40-year wait for the resurrection. And unfortunately, it never happened. You know, so as we can well expect, that sort of thing just doesn't happen. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so Hugh Schoenfeld is off base because he's too dependent on the New Testament. But yeah, I suggest that once we know that the sectarian name 
that Nazarene is a sectarian name, that we find the, the, the Jewish sect with that name. And with the Dead Sea Scroll community, we have found the sect with that name because they called themselves Shamrai Habrit in one of the documents that we have. And the Aramaic uh, uh, version of that is Nazarene Habrit. So we have the Nazarene sect in the scrolls uh, with their sectarian name. And everything else matches. The uh, Now, we have to realize that there was a lot of different names that came out. These sectarians called themselves by many different names. Uh, for example, they called themselves the poor. And we got, uh, that's Ebionim. We get the Ebionite sect comes out of that later on as one of the, the Menim variations. Uh, they call themselves the many. They call themselves the pure. Call themselves the righteous. Uh, they call themselves sons of light, uh, doers of the law, uh, last generation, uh, keepers of the covenant. Uh, they had many different names for themselves, and uh, you can use the collective plurals of these as different very versions of sectarian names for them if you wanted to. But uh, I think Nazarene is the one that's most appropriate, in my opinion. Uh, because it's distinctive and we know where it leads to and it, it's the appropriate connection I think to Jesus um, uh, so they also had a, uh, an, an opponent who sounds very much like Paul hmm. uh, um, so talking about the, the Nazarene name and the Ebionites um, both the Nazarene and Ebionites were associated with the Dead Sea Scrolls mm -hmm. uh, well not not Dead Sea Scrolls, the, the Essenes. Um, specifically, though, the early church father, um, one of them referred to... Epiphanius. Yeah, uh, referred to the Ebionites... Um, as, as the a, same as the Essenes. group of the Essenes. Exactly, um, and, and that's exactly so the, the belief system. The belief system of the Ebionites aligns more with uh, James yes. uh, and his community. Whereas the Nazarenes, uh, at least in the tradition where it goes off into Pauline Christianity, they accept Paul, they accept his letters. Um, and right, very that's much the Pauline, Pauline Nazarenes, like uh, I said. Uh, influence movement. Yes, um, the Pauline in Nazarenes named their group after Jesus of Nazareth and they're Pauline. And that's they're the later group. But in the first century... They didn't exist yet. Paul's group was only in Asia Minor and was an offshoot still uh, and uh, subservient under James. Now, James apparently had domination. Paul was, uh, I, I accept uh, SGF Brandon's suggestion that Paul was either in prison or dead by 55 CE and out of the picture and that allowed james and his group uh james james died by 62 ce but james had to have a period where he dominated over the pauline churches in asia minor because paul's writings became very decrepit and got torn to pieces and shredded to pieces like first corinthians for example is uh three different pauline letters uh pieced together to make one epistle the uh it's a ragtag mess for the Pauline corpus. And I think the only reason it could, the only way it could have become so decrepit is during that time period, because later on, the Romanized church 
they revered Paul. Even their opponents, the Gnostics under Marcion, they revered Paul. So they would not have let Paul's writings get so decrepit. It's only when James was dominated that, that could have happened. So that explains it if Paul was gone a little bit, went out first, and then his writings got messed up. James get taken out 62 CE, his followers get wiped out by 70 CE, and then the first gospel gets written just after 70 CE, and the Pauline Christians get a following, and they, those followers start to restore the Pauline documents best they can, and they're the Pauline school that put together documents later on, like the book of Hebrews and things like that. Yeah, so the it took a while for that to, to, to take over. Now, Josephus does not include the Pauline group as a Jewish sect in his description of Jewish sects. And I think that the Nazarene group, they, that, that using first century sources, the Dead Sea Scrolls sect had the name first and Paul can't abscond with it. So I figured, don't let him take it. He can call himself his group Christians if they want, but he can't call themselves Nazarenes. And those who were called themselves Nazarenes were using the name inappropriately and they're from a different source. But the, the original Nazarene group, I would say, are the Dead Sea Scroll community. But that's just arguing over who, what name you want to call them. Uh, they call themselves by many different names, so uh, we can agree to disagree on how we use the name Nazarene, yeah, if you really want to. But uh, the Dead Sea Scroll community they were anti-Paul, and then they were they were James community. I agree with Robert Eisman that James is a part of the community. Robert Eisman suggests that 4QMMT was written by James. The uh, and the it certainly matches. If you read the book of James in the New Testament, it talks about the friends of God and the enemies of the world. That's exactly the attitude of the Dead Sea Scroll community. It was this dualistic worldview it's you're either a friend of god and a lover of torah and a doer of the law or you're uh, an enemy of god and a friend of the world yeah so that's the exact same perspective that james took it's a perfect match and uh, so uh i i agree with eisman on his association of james with the Qumran community. And uh, like Eisman says, whatever James was, Jesus was. I think Jesus was connected to that community too. Uh, another thing too is uh, this opponent of the Jewish sect, according to the Habakkuk Pesher, Dead Sea Scrolls, their opponent he joined them after their teacher, Arisenus, died. Uh, he opposed Jewish Torah and law. He went around preaching, and the subject of his preaching was blood. He offered a Eucharist that was poured, and he raised up congregations. That's a pretty specific list that sounds a lot like the Apostle Paul. How many people went around preaching? How many went around raising up congregations? How many had a Eucharist? How many were preaching anti-Jewish law? You know, this, this list, how many were once part of that sect and left under hostile circumstances? It's an exact match to the Apostle Paul. The, uh, then we have the Apostle Paul saying that his opponents, that they were led by another Jesus. He didn't say another Christ. He said another Jesus, that Jesus was the name of the leaders of that sect. He even goes on to, he even described 
this sectarian leader at one point. In 1 Corinthians 13, he says, if even if you have all knowledge and all wisdom and understand all mysteries and you speak all languages and you even talk to the angels, if you don't have love, you're nothing. You're a clanging symbol. You're nothing. Remember 1 Corinthians 13, New Testament? Now, the Dead Sea Scrolls, their community rule uh, had a description of their overseer, their mebaker. And to be the mebaker, you had to be between 30 and 60 years of age. You had to be a master of all the mysteries. Hmm, sounds like that thing. Uh, you had to speak all the languages of men. What a requirement. Yeah. So, and this, this overseer was alleged to know the angels by name and talk with the angels. So that, that matches everything on Paul's list. And that's quite an unusual list. Master of all mysteries, speaks all languages, talks with the angels. Oh, and no love for Paul. No love for Paul. <laughs> so, the, again, it's a perfect match. Paul seemed to be aware of the overseer of the Kuman community and made fun of him. And the Kuman community seemed to be aware of Paul and condemned him. They called Paul the liar. And three times, even in our inner Pauline corpus, as bad as it is, and poorly preserved as it is, three different places, Paul's saying, protesting, I'm not lying. I'm not lying. I'm not lying. If you had a salesman come to your house and he's trying to sell you a vacuum cleaner or something, and three times in the presentation he tells you he's not lying, would you trust him? No, not really. Not really, exactly. Anybody has to keep telling you that they're not lying is probably used to being called a liar. And that's exactly what the Dead Sea Scroll community called Paul, I think. So they, uh, they also uh, expected Peter to James refers to Paul as his enemy. And yep. I think in the pseudo-Clementine literature, uh, there's uh, some, some references to Paul as the enemy. Exactly. It's a perfect match for that. And uh, you can see uh, parallels in the pseudo-Clementine speeches for James. You can see parallels to the speeches given to uh, Stephen in the New Testament and the same language, uh, the pro protora uh, martyrdom. Uh, they expected prophetic everything prophetic to wrap up within one generation or 40 years. They expected a soon coming kingdom on earth. And it's interesting, the Lord's Prayer, how much of the New Testament can you rely on? Not, well, parts of it and not, and, and parts of it are okay and parts of it aren't. How do you know which parts? Well, I say the parts that match the Dead Sea Scrolls are the parts that are reliable and the parts that don't are the parts that aren't. And I get that from how I prioritize my sources. The, uh, and the the Lord's Prayer seems to be one of the reliable parts of the New Testament. Why? Because it's quoted in the Nag Hammadi Library, Gospel of Philip. And it says, and he would not have said, my father, who is in heaven, unless he had an earthly father. So this is part of the argument that the Nag Hammadi Library was using to say that Jesus had an earthly father. He was a human being. And... And of course, 
I agree with that. I'm I'm a historical researcher, uh, and I I look at Jesus. He was a human being, uh, just like the rest of us. Uh, so, the fact that they cited the Lord's Prayer, though, that's where he says, "My Father who is in heaven." That's where that part passage is cited. So, the Gospel of Philip, which was written before our copy of the Gospel of Philip, is about second century CE, and so. That's two centuries before any of our copies of the New Testament. So that's that means that part of the New Testament at least has attestation earlier than anything we have elsewhere in the New Testament. So that part makes sense. Um, um, can you can you hear me? Yes, I can. Okay. Um, multiple times this is cut out the video yep. here. Yeah. And I am really afraid, like portions of this are going to be lost or something um, well you edit what you can you save what you can and we, okay. we try again if it all fails no problem and a last connection for the sectarian connection for jesus to the dead sea scrolls is the word play uh, the last line of the damascus document is and they shall see his salvation because they trusted in his holy name but it's they shall see yeshuatu because they trusted in his holy name yeah so they actually have the name of Jesus in there where it's talking about his holy name. Anyway, so I think that's enough. Why don't we uh, give that a rest there? That's enough about the sex on one video. No problem. Well, why don't we just end the video here? And you well, I, I appreciate you for taking the time. Shalom, Harim. Lehitro. All right. Yeah, thank you. Christopher Lawson's uh, conversation on this brings insight into how the Qumran community, the Essenes, influenced the early Jesus movement. And I uh, just felt like this was an important topic to cover and share. And I hope that you found it insightful. I apologize for the technical issues of my end. Definitely try to make sure that doesn't happen again in the future. Um, um, there's a point in it where we kind of talk about the different sects um, of Judaism. Uh, and, and the sect, the followers, uh, the early Jewish uh, movement that followed Jesus, the two separate sects, the Nazarenes and the Ebionites. Um, the the New Testament connects Paul uh, to the sect of the Nazarenes in Acts 24.5, calls him the ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Uh, later in the Talmud, Christians come to be known as uh, Nazarenes. Uh, the first time it was used, as I said, was Acts 24 uh where he's called the ringleader um uh before the roman procurator uh antonius felix at caesarea maritima uh by tertullius uh and he's the first to apply it to them herod agrippa uses the term uh christians in acts 26 um which seems to first be used at antioch uh, the name used by Tertullius survives in Mishnaic and modern Hebrew as Netzarim, and that's what they use in the, the Talmud. Um, again, early church fathers uh, like Tertullian against Marcion records that the Jews called Christians Nazarenes. Um, and Eusebius even records that the name Nazarenes um, as, a, as a sect. Um, and then uh, Pafinius um, also uses that term later on. Um, now Ep Epiphanius uh, also says the Essenes hold the same views of those called the Ebionites. So this is where the term of Ebionites comes in. 
Um, the interesting thing is the Nazarenes followed Paul and Paul's epistles, um, and they were what I believe the parting of the ways between the Ebionites and the Nazarenes is what eventually led to the parting of ways um, between Christianity and Judaism. Um, the Ebionites rejected Paul and his epistles, considered him an, a heretic and apostate, and they believed James was their leader. Um, they, this is about the conflict between James and Paul and uh, James and Peter and Paul. Um, the Ebionites seem to believe uh, that Jesus is born of Joseph uh, as his father. Um, and so he wasn't born of a virgin. They didn't believe in the resurrection or the ascension. Uh, they didn't believe in the other doctrines that later came to be developed in Christianity and in Pauline uh, Christianity, which led to the parting of the ways. And so the, the definition of terms, the Nazarenes for what the, the Talmud calls Christians, Nitzarim, uh, comes out of the Pauline sect. Whereas the Ebionites were followers of James and Peter who stayed within Judaism and very much like the Qumran community had a process of conversion, ritual purity, mikvahs, communal meals. Um, and, uh, you know, James community can be said to be very much influenced like and very much like the Essenes, uh, if not a branch or influenced by. Oh, yeah. One last comment I want to make. Um, Christopher Lawson makes a comment uh, referring to the messianic expectation of uh, Jews in the first century, um, and he calls the Qumran uh, messianic Judaism. Uh, to be clear, that's a historical reference and in no way tied to modern messianic Judaism. Um, there were many messianic uh, zealots and Zakari and those who believed in a Messiah and the Messianic Judaism in the first century, they had the expectation that Messiah would come and would reestablish the kingdom of David on earth physically, um, that he would bring world peace, that he would gather in all the Jews. And there are many Messianic movements or you know, uh, you could call them Judaisms that had a messianic idea um, in no way similar to the idea of the Christian version nowadays. Uh, Rabbi Carol Harris Shapiro, uh, speaking about uh, modern messianic Judaism, um, points out that they're apostates to Judaism. They have no place in communal life. Um, you know, uh, they're, they're not going to be buried in a Jewish funeral. Um, they won't. Uh, they don't have access to Jewish community. They may be uh, genetically Jewish, but they are Christians and they chose to be Christians. And she refers to Gentiles who uh, wear tzitzit and tallits and stuff like that uh, as cross dressers, uh, you know, in the name of the cross dressing up to convert people. Um, and um, in general, like they, they're not part of the Jewish community because they accept things that Jews can't accept, um, a dying and rising God, um, a different view of salvation for Jews, uh, gay laws and national redemption. And that's when uh, Mishik reestablishes the kingdom of David, brings world peace. Um, 
it's definitely you know different than because you know they they follow a christian worldview not a jewish worldview they're you know ancestrally jewish but um not within judaism so i just want to make that caveat that there is a difference and there's a reason why jews don't believe jesus is the messiah because like many other uh, messianic attempts uh he was cut off before his time wasn't set up as king mashiach because messiah uh, in the jewish tradition is supposed to be king mashiach um and so um I just wanted to add that caveat to define terms that there were those in the first century that uh, were looking for and believed in a Messiah and the historic reference to Messianic Jewish views or Jews that be believed in a Messiah is not the same as the modern term. So I just want to make sure we uh, define terms. Um, and I do want to thank everybody for tuning in and um, I'll catch you on the next episode. But yeah, I want to thank everybody for tuning in and uh, see you guys next time.